When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. My guest for this episode is Tad Friend, the longtime New Yorker staff writer and the author of two beautifully written memoirs, Cheerful Money, Me, My Family, and the Last Days of Wasp Splendor, and recently, In the Early Times, A Life Reframed. To give you just some idea of Tad's literary range and skill, over the years his work has been chosen for the best American travel writing, the best American sports writing, the best American crime reporting, and the best technology writing. And in 2020, he won a James Beard Award for feature writing for an article about meatless meats. Meatless meats, Tad, really? I guess I should add here that Tad and I have been good friends since college, so I hope listeners will generously excuse any excessive irony on the host part in this otherwise highly professional episode. All right, Tad, welcome to Beyond the Page. Thank you. I didn't realize meatless meats was such a funny phrase, but now that you say it. I may be about 20 years behind, but let's ignore that. All right, so... Let's get serious or something, shall we? I thought you've been staff writer of The New Yorker for 25 years, and you've been practicing the sort of gold standard of journalism, which has become somewhat endangered in publications over the years, which is long-form journalism. And you've had this incredible job. It is the gold standard for what people think of when they think of being able to be a journalist and following your interests and your passions at the height of the literary spectrum of that for arguably the world's finest magazine, The New Yorker. And I really thought that as a way of entering into discussion of long-form journalism and your experience of that and the lessons you've learned, that we could start with a really interesting recent piece that you wrote called Earth League International Hunts the Hunters. I guess I would say, how did you hear about this piece? How did you decide to write it? Just to kind of give listeners a feeling for how a piece like this might come together for you and The New Yorker. So recently I've been noticing that often pieces that I'm working on come out of other pieces in a way where if you kind of keep your ears open as you're reporting one long piece over the course of three to eight months, you'll often hear about adjacent terrains that seem interesting. And increasingly I I find that I often don't know what a story is exactly, but I know the terrain feels interesting. And that's what makes me think, yes, I do want to go pursue that. And it might even just be two words or a a phrase or someone mentioning a funny joke about something. And I'm like, oh, that sounds, it's a little stirring in in the pit of my stomach that makes me think, oh, I want to do that. Or conversely, when an editor suggests something, I think, absolutely not. I do not wish to do that at all. I never would. In this case, reverting to Meatless Meats, when I was writing that piece a few years ago, which was about the Stanford professor who started Impossible Burger and Impossible Foods, an attempt to get meat off the planet entirely as a way of reducing man's carbon and methane footprint and 
making the world a healthier place. Someone mentioned to me, oh, there, if you like writing about this part of the environment, there's a guy based in Los Angeles who's doing really interesting work with animals. And so I got in touch with him and we Zoomed a couple of times. I just wanted to find out what he was doing exactly. And is he someone who feels like a who, you know, you're going to be happy hanging around with and who's going to be candid and not making me fight him the whole time to get me to like included or... And you're calling from the New Yorker, which could lead to much larger window and attention paid to this thing that he's been doing, which may be good or may be bad, I guess, for him. Yeah. I try not to think too much about the potential consequences of whatever I write, because that could be inhibiting. And that obviously came up in this instance because I was spending a lot of time going along on their undercover operations. And, you know, you can't just say the real name of so-and-so is such-and-such, and and it was actually taking place here, and here are the actual names of the people they were taping or investigating. You have to kind of build in a buffer of pseudonymity and vagueness, but not so much so that it's like something bad was happening in some part of the world, and I can't tell you much more about it than that, which would be death as a reader. So once you've made this connection with him and you feel confident enough to go forth, what are your concerns as you go in? What are you looking for? How do you start a process that you feel confident is going to lead to the peace you want? I think a point you're making to my ears is to expand upon because it's actually how I think about who I'm going to write about is trying to find someone who is doing some things a little bit unconventionally. And in this case, Mm -hmm. other people had tried to stop wildlife trafficking. Countries have tried to stop it. NGOs have tried to stop it. Intergovernmental organizations have tried very feebly (laughs) to try to stop it. But no one was trying to do it as systematically and as thoroughly as Earth League International. There are other NGOs that have had successes and have had used undercovers. And let me also say, the one reason you haven't heard of Earth League International is it's super small. Like, there are basically four people who work there. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly tiny budget of $350,000, and some months he can't pay himself as much as he'd like. So the idea is great, and what they try to do is getting undercovers who speak some version of Chinese, Cantonese, Mandarin, or other Chinese dialects, and who go undercover because a lot of the product ends up going to China. And what also struck me, sorry, is they're trying to break the process and the systems. There's a day that you describe spending a day at JFK, you know, back in the, the bowels of the shipping areas with some officers of the Fish and Wildlife Office of Law Enforcement. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience and what it told you about the scale of the fight versus the resources at hand, and also how that shed light back on what someone like Andrea and his three colleagues are doing back in L.A., and how it made you feel about the scale of the problem as a whole. Yeah, well, the the U.S., pulling back sort of a little higher view for just one moment, mm-hmm. a lot of the products that you mentioned that Earth League International is trying to stop the shipment of, or end up going to Vietnam or China. Some of them, you know, like Vietnam and China gets a lot of elephant and ivory and, and rhino horn and pangolin scales and things of that nature, uh, jaguar teeth and tiger teeth, some of it for traditional Asian medicine. Then in Europe, you generally, you're seeing a lot of birds, songbirds, birds and lizards, amphibians, newts, and sort of more curiosities for animal lovers that are often alive, not dead. And then in the U.S., you're getting a lot of things that come in 
that are caiman skin boots or roseate spoonbill salad tongs. <laughs> weird, sort of, that fall <laughs> under the general category of weird shit, but uh, is it illegal? What I discovered, though, to get back to your question, was that the enforcement budget of Fish and Wildlife is $95 million a year, but they felt incredibly undermanned. They, guy said to me, I don't think it ended up in the piece, but he was saying, like, you know, the first time we catch you doing something, we, we, you know, we warn you. The second time we send you a letter of warning. The third time we might warn you about a civil penalty. The fourth time we might try a civil penalty. And the fifth time we catch you, we might try to prosecute you if you have enough evidence. And I was like, wow, that's, that's an incredible amount of leeway if, because it's not until the fifth time that you even have to really worry about the fact that you're sending in radiated tortoises or sending them out, then it doesn't really, it's not much of a disincentive to do it. And there were three people on duty that day to like cover the more than 100,000 passengers, the tons and tons of mail and cargo coming in and out of JFK. And it's just like, they were sort of basically just occasionally wanly dipping a net into a mighty river and hoping they caught something. Sounds very depressing. That is very depressing. And that's the big U.S. agencies charged with stopping the flow of traffic. There, there are other agencies that are also like FBI and Homeland Security that are also charged with it and that have bigger budgets. But this is the one that's, if you think of who would it be, it would be Fish and Wildlife. And they are saying, you know, we really aren't, we can't do the job that we're supposed to do. So where, where would they be without the ELIs, the Andrea Crostas of the world? You go back to LA and you see these guys, there are only four of them, but they are obsessively living and breathing these plans to interfere with these networks all over the world on the ground. Yeah, I spoke with someone, the lead agent at Homeland Security who works with Earth League, said that they just don't have access to these particular networks. And so they really do rely on them heavily at the same time as Earth League is keenly aware that in the great scale of harms that threaten the U.S., Homeland Security is probably least worried about wildlife trafficking. It's, it's very low on its list. The, the only way they can interest Homeland Security in going after the guys they've identified is by showing that these guys are also smuggling people, money laundering, right. sending in fentanyl precursors, all those things. If they're also doing that, which they usually are, then they can interest Homeland Security or the FBI in going after them. Mm-hmm. And China, you very clearly paint the picture. It's something like five or six times larger, it seems, Vietnam would be the second of any other country in terms of how it is funding and resourcing trafficking. It's like a vacuum sucking up the world's natural resources. So does that give it a larger footprint in a way in terms of its problems? Or is it because China, we have so many other issues with China, uh, it makes it something that we're even less inclined to get in the way of? Both. From a national security standpoint, it's hugely on the radar of the U.S. and therefore useful for strategic purposes if you can, you know, it may be a bargaining chip for other things. So therefore back off of Taiwan or therefore please, you know, try not to steal quite as many of our secrets from Silicon Valley. A number of NGOs that have offices in in China, I spoke with them and they all said, like one guy said to me, when we went to China, we would show the Chinese officials, here are the statistics. You guys are by far the leading malefactor in the world in terms of wildlife trafficking. And he said then they would get nowhere. Like they would just get that end of meeting, basically. Thank you. Great meeting. That was it. Whereas if they said you are one of the leading malefactors, then the meeting could continue and they might profitably get somewhere. And so it was learning how to sort of speak the two local sensitivities, not just point the finger, but actually say, well, how can we help versus like you guys are bad 
figure it out. After spending, you know, six, eight months on this, it is such a deep dive and you carry all this with you going forward. Did you end up more or less hopeful afterwards about the possibility of any genuine policing of wildlife crimes around the globe, let alone in this country? But I would say less, to be not totally honest, just because I felt like the scope of what's happening and the pace of it, and you can just click on Google Earth and look at what's happening to not just wildlife, but also the ecosystem in general, and feel like even as a, you know, in terms of just like the number of, the population of vertebrates on land parts of the planet is, you know, 95% human beings and their livestock and 5% wild animals. And that number is only going to get worse. That number really shocked me, I have to say. It shocked me too. And it's extremely high. It is, and it's just like, you're like, wow, we are just, it's just us and our livestock basically. And then there's a few pretty little animals that we've allowed so far to continue to exist in the, in the wild. But the share of the earth that is wild, quote unquote, is increasingly small. So I feel like there are people, there are heroic people doing heroic work and and kind of sticking their fingers in the dike as much as possible, but there are constantly new holes springing in the dike, is what I feel, full stop. That said, I think Greta Thunberg is doing heroic work and I admire her and you, you can kind of keep rooting and you think, well, maybe she'll figure something out that we older people have not. I often end up being drawn more to stories of noble failure than success Mm -hmm. because success is rare and it feels almost less human to me. Maybe this is a sort of gloomy view, but I actually think there's something about failure, you know, try, fail, try again, fail better, that the Beckett saying Mm -hmm. that appeals to me as a, as a kind of like, that's what we do. We're, we're, we keep trying and hoping to do a little better, even in the face of discouraging feedback from the universe. And so I end up often writing about people who haven't succeeded, but are still trying. Well, because they're often in their failures, extraordinary people. And so reading about them, particularly in this form of journalism that you're so good at, is maybe it's sort of aspirational in a way for the reader. You find in them those heroic qualities in their failures, but you also recognize what it takes, the amount of passion and commitment it takes to care about something that much. Yeah, it's not easy to fail. To fail, you're putting yourself out there, you're throwing everything into it, and then you fail. That is, to me, a much nobler and more interesting situation than deciding to kind of bag it and just carry on without trying to face down large and implacable forces. Where would we be in literature without failure? We'd have nothing really to do. Yes. Happy families are all alike and not worth writing about. Exactly. Exactly. So this seems to me a point of kind of stepping back and and thinking about so many different stories that you've done over the years and those that jump out at you. And, and I've always wondered for you, you know, as you begin to engage with your main characters of a piece and get to know them and see what they're capable of and and not. Where are some of the stories or lessons you've learned over the years about what signs you see early on that may lead to something good or may in fact where you think, oh, I don't know if this is going to work and you're well into it by that time. And whether there's a point sometimes where you want to cut bait, what it is that would cause you to do that. Yeah, no, they're all they're all great questions, and I'm just sort of thinking about it. I think the reason I, I trust my gut at this point, for better or worse, is I usually feel like I'm not just going to blindly go write about something without ever having talked to the person who I think 
may help me be the way into the story. I want to talk to them and make sure they, they feel like they're open to it. They're candid. They're willing to have me hang around for a while. They're, they don't mind if I'm going along with them as they do their jobs, to their meetings, that sort of thing. So that once I have that, I feel like, okay, this could work. There are definitely times, I can think of a couple of times where I've never had a piece that I have bailed really? on, That's, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. and I've, and they've all and they've all been published. There are a certain number of pieces that people who've written for the New Yorker for a long time write that don't end mm-hmm. up getting published for one reason or another because the moment has passed or they didn't quite get the access they were hoping for or whatever. Or you know, there was a similar piece that came out in another magazine. So that's that's the luck aspect. You're not always fully in charge of everything. But there have been times. When I was writing about Darren Aronofsky, the director, I was spending time with him on the movie. He was doing Noah, starring Russell Crowe. And I was going to be one of those, like, I'm going to follow him from shooting through editing until the movie's about to come out kind of pieces. So it was a long course of reporting, but I was also doing some other stuff. I was kind of going away for a while and then coming back as he got into the next phase of stuff. And at a certain point, his publicist called me and was like, you know, Darren's just not feeling it. And he just doesn't want to, want to do it anymore. He just feels like, you know, it's a great experience working with you all, blah, 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 smoke, smoke, smoke. But basically he's going to stop. At that point, he was very, as we all know, and when you're doing something creative, there are some real dark nights of the soul. He was in one of those. Yep. He was like, I don't want to show my dark night of the soul to Tad or the readers through him. I had totally got that. And however, first of all, I thought it was, it was a bullshit move to have his publicist call me. Honestly, I thought it was like, you know, we've spent enough time together where you can call me up and we can talk it through. And I, I would have been actually more likely to exceed if it, if he had called me up and said, I just can't do it. I would have been like, I totally get it. Look, Mm -hmm. but the publicist move kind of got my back up a bit. And then I said, well, unfortunately, Darren is like seven and a half months pregnant. So we're going to deliver the baby with, and he would probably be a healthier baby if, you know, Darren cooperated and we got all the way to term. But otherwise I've got enough that I can write a piece and it just won't be the piece that it could be. So it's up to him, of course, whether he wants. And then we went for a walk and chatted and he actually very graciously apologized for, I think he said, I was sorry, I was such a dick or some such verbiage. And we carried it on. And of course, I didn't mention any of that in the piece. Let me ask you, do you think that that helped the piece in a weird way? I think there was part of him that was just like, all right, God damn it, I'll do this thing a little bit. And then there was also, I think there's any time that you have a really candid conversation that's not an easy conversation, it's good. And I told him we're not going to have any of these back and forth about the fact that you're of two minds about continuing. It will not be in the piece. You know, like I'm, I'm just want, you know, the piece to be about the work here. I think he appreciated the fact that I stuck to that. I, I never like getting mad in life. It feels like a defeat mm-hmm. usually to me, but I often find that I, when I get mad, I get pretty mad, <laughs> perhaps as a result of not liking to I get mad, but not you. in that, not, yeah. Yeah, like when I feel like I'm right and I'm mad, I think I can channel that into a contained fury that is effective. And so I had another instance where I was writing about Masterclass a couple of years ago, and it was a piece written during COVID. So unfortunately, it was all reported over Zoom, which I do not recommend to anyone and I would never do again. When you're doing things over Zoom, usually there's, you know, like if it's a meeting, there's one person talking and everyone else turns their screens off. You get about one tenth the information you would get in an actual meeting where you can see, oh, John is really annoyed by what I'm saying right now. Or so-and-so has a question, but they're afraid to ask it. It's just not, you end up using about one and a half of your five senses and it's terrible. The piece took way longer to report because I was kind of trying to glean little shards of information instead of having the usual panoply of human interactions where you can see People are delighted and everyone's eating too many muffins and all that stuff that just kind of goes into the back of your head and helps inform how you think about things. The founder, David, who I got along with beautifully and really liked, 
and but he also had a PR apparatus that was very interfering in my view. And toward the end of it, there'd been a bunch of things that we sort of tabled like actual numbers about how well are you doing and how much money are you making and how many subscribers do you have and all those things that they viewed as proprietary. But we'd ahead of time, if we're going to do this, you have to give me some of that stuff so that readers will have a sense of how well you're actually doing and how much of an impact you're actually making. It can't just be And this is a verbal agreement, I assume. This is a verbal, yeah, verbal agreement, which I... You know, which is fine. I'm not going to get lawyers involved at the beginning of a piece. That would be anathema to like mm-hmm. proper atmosphere. A verbal agreement, which they, in my view, totally abrogated at the end when I asked a whole bunch of those questions and I got back from their PR person, like, we're not feel comfortable giving you that. We can't give you that. And I was like, fuck this. And I called up David and we had a very candid mm-hmm. and contained fury conversation where I was like, David, I am not going to publish this piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the, the baby. Uh, not I'm going to deliver the baby. No, it's like yeah, we are ending this pregnancy right now, and all the time that we've spent is totally wasted unless you give me the numbers that you promised me. Is that because you understood that he wanted this piece out. Well, he yeah, there was leverage. There was the sunk cost. We both spent all this time. It would be a defeat for everyone mm-hmm. if that's the result that ended up. And I didn't didn't want to have to get there, but I had gotten pushed to that, and I, I tried other ways before that. But I was like. And, and also David is a good person and he recognized that it was an abrogation of what he had said. Mm-hmm. And so he got me enough stuff that we, and it was complicated because they were thinking about an IPO and there was all the lawyers were telling him, don't give any information. And there were reasons, there were you know reasons other than perversity that they were refusing to like give me information, but I- And it's a business. It's a business. And then they were worried about like other people as they, every business is always worried about like, if we show you what's under the hood, either people are going to like, think that's stupid or else they're going to copy it. So these are things sort of unpleasant surprises you hit in the middle that you have to navigate your way around. And you you very successfully have. Again, all of your pieces have come out and been published. I imagine there are also sometimes you get surprised on the upside in some really unusual way where somebody reveals something or opens up in a way or there's some turn of a relationship or event that you didn't see coming. I used to think about it as a hinge moment. Yes. And I think this happens a lot. Like Almost everyone, myself very much included, has a kind of public slash performative persona. Even if you're a private-ish person who's not used to talking to media, you still, there's a version of yourself that you put out in the world when you go to the supermarket or go to the bank, or you're behaving in a certain way that's often different than the way you are with your family or the way you are with your own thoughts at 3 a.m. The thing that leads to the hinge moment is the fact that it's not just me talking to you, John, but me talking to your wife, Alexandra, and talking to your friends and talking to your relatives and talking to the people you knew who you treated well and the people who you didn't treat so well. Then coming back to you and not in a accusatory or confrontational way, but just simply saying, well, so-and-so told me this. Does that ring a bell? And then at a certain point, all those things lead to people realizing, oh, not, not usually consciously, but unconsciously realizing the version that I put out there is not really the full story. And if you know X about me, but you've heard it's only that's only the partial truth, you should really understand Y and Z as well. Let me tell you those things. Like, to make sense of X, like the reason that I burned down the school, right. admittedly, ill-advisedly in ninth grade was because. And then, you know, you begin to, like, get more of the actual 3 a.m. version mm-hmm. of people. And it usually is not necessarily like a, an aha, eureka, epiphanic moment. It's more of a gradual process where there's usually one conversation where you start to feel like, okay, now I'm getting 
the actual goods. Yeah. I'm not just getting the talking points or I'm not just getting the way you like to think of yourself or the way you would like people to think of yourself. I think people appreciate their own complexity. I'm thinking one of your earliest pieces with New Yorker, I think it was like 1999, and it immediately jumped to us because it's set in Sun Valley, where the Writers' Conference is, of course. And remember, the, it, Gold Diggers, that piece? <laughs> you, you want to just recount in a sentence or two what that was about? I think it's, it just shows the just bizarre nature of, of humans. Oh, thanks, John. Well, it was, it was about two guys who were grading Jan Winter's driveway <laughs> in Sun Valley. Jan Winter was the founder of Rolling Stone. And they were grading his driveway. They found a jar full of gold coins that someone had buried there years ago, obviously. And they decided, to, of course, to keep it and split the proceeds and not tell a young winner. And then, you know, in the time-honored manner of thieves falling out, they fell out. And then they each were trying to various elaborate schemes to get the gold off of themselves. And long story short, Jan Wenner ended up with the gold. <laughs> who did not, the only person who didn't actually need the gold. There you have the, the American the American story, writ large. One last question as we wrap up. You've now written two wonderful memoirs, like almost 15 years apart. The first is about your family, but also very much about your mother. And the re most recent one is about you know, hitting middle age, various things, but it's very much about your father as well. And I wonder how you feel that writing those longer form pieces, books um, about yourself, where you are to a large extent scrutinizing yourself, observing yourself, listening and reporting on yourself in a way that you have done with others more deeply even, and perhaps more ruthlessly or more objectively, if that has changed how you feel, you might go about or want to go about your reporting work, your journalism going forward and the subjects that attract you. I think it has inevitably, and I'm not quite sure how. And I think the lesson I learned or tried to stick to in both those books was being harder on myself than on anyone else I was writing about in my family, or if not harder, then at least as hard and hopefully harder. So I, I wasn't just seeming to like spray my machine gun at my parents for problems that were at my age, my own, not, not theirs. The way that I think it may have had an effect on my work is I feel like this kind of the, the opposite of that or the, the corollary of that in dealing with other people is I think, I think when I was younger, I was a little spikier and a little more like, oh, here's a funny thing I can say about this person. And a little more kept everyone at a distance in my life, which I realized in the course of writing this for my own psychological reasons of not wanting people to see ways in which I felt damaged or incomplete or unlovable. And so writing was a tool for keeping people at a distance. I would be like, mm -hmm. I can show them, I can you know, spend all this time writing this thing that feels hard to take issue with or that feels like the best version of myself because it's it's got good grammar and it's got semicolons. And I've observed them so yes. clinically. Yes, and I'm keeping myself out of it. But I am presenting this thing that is like a temple. It's just there and you, you don't think much about who made the temple, you're just admiring the temple. And I think increasingly I feel more that I'm trusting my own instincts about people and trying to explain why I sometimes feel X about so-and-so, mm -hmm. what it is about them that makes me feel that. Even if they're being annoying, I kind of am smiling that complicated reaction we have to people sometimes yep. try to explain that rather than simply saying he was 57 years old and had salty gray hair and 
a kind of half smile. I try to get it at the kind of emotional truth of people and also to be harder on myself as the writer than I am on the subject. If I'm getting annoyed, maybe that's me. Maybe that's not them. Maybe I'm just feeling frustrated that I don't understand them yet and that's not their fault. Instead of being like, they're inscrutable. I think I would kind of branch off in another direction rather than trying to pursue that. Mm -hmm. And why is that? And what is that about? And that may be the real story here rather than the fact that they made X billion dollars last year and if three movies were hits. Well, it allows for layers of meaning and about the journey of the piece as well, how you're getting the information, what you're seeing. And, you know, as the world grows more complex, it seems not only fitting, but necessary almost to have that. And it's something you only get by doing the work over many years and sort of observing oneself as you go through it. Listen, imagine if there were no New Yorker or the Atlantic, there are very few. And I certainly feel grateful as a reader for that. I feel grateful for your work. Personally, you know, I feel grateful for your friendship. But I look forward to seeing what you're going to do going forward and what interests you and what you feel you need to do to bring to the public eye. So can't thank you enough for joining me. Totally enjoyed it, John, and I'll be back. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Until next time.